Thank you, Lucretia. Hello, everybody. Nice to see you. Nice to be with you this afternoon. Good to see your smiling faces. We are in the middle of this series that we've been working through on called Vineyard Values, which is where we are talking about five values that have been really central to our movement of churches, which is called the Vineyard. So today we're going to be thinking about one of our values, and that is that we aspire to be a kingdom people who engage in compassionate ministry, engage in compassionate ministry. Now, I'm not going to lie to you, engage is a fairly broad word. It can mean a lot of different things. And now that I'm thinking about it, so is compassionate and so is ministry. So engage in compassionate ministry in is probably the most concrete word in that whole statement. It could mean a lot of different things to do to engage in compassionate ministry, but thankfully the Vineyard has written a little description for us to clarify what we mean by that. And so I want to read you this paragraph because I think this is really helpful and, and much clearer. It says, we want to lean toward the lost, the poor, the outcast, and the outsider with the compassion of Jesus as sinners whose only standing before God is utter dependence on the mercy of God. This mercy can only be truly received inasmuch as we are willing to give it away. We believe that ministry in Jesus' name should be expressed in concrete ways through the local church. The poor are to be served as those serving Jesus himself. This is one of the distinguishing characteristics of a church expressing the love of Christ in a local community. I love that. In other words, to to be the church of Christ is to be the people who are called in our words, in our deeds, in our bodies, to testify to the compassion that Jesus has for the lost, the poor, the outsider. So as we are working our way through this series, we are not just talking about the values. We are also looking at scripture to kind of find where they come from, to find their their basis there, to see uh, where these values have arisen from. So we're going to be looking today at some verses from Galatians chapter 2, if you have a Bible and, and would like to follow along. But first, I'm going to pray for us. Let's pray. Lord, Lord Jesus, we, we just, we have come to worship you today because you are here. You have been here even before us and have drawn us to this place. So Lord, we ask that you would give us ears to hear what you want to say to us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the interesting things about looking for Bible verses that are about God's love for the poor, the vulnerable, the outcast is that these verses are, uh, they're just everywhere. They're all over the place. This matters a lot to God. They're, his love for the poor is in, like, the biblical laws, even, that, that command Israel to treat workers well. This is, this is from Deuteronomy 24.14. It says, You shall not withhold the wages of poor and needy laborers, whether other Israelites or aliens who reside in your land in one of your towns. You shall pay them their wages daily before sunset, because they are poor and their livelihood depends on them. Otherwise... They might cry to the Lord against you, and you would incur guilt. The biblical prophets are full of warnings to the rich, like Zechariah 7.10. Do not oppress the widow, the orphan, the alien, or the poor. And the prophets are also full of encouragement, encouraging words to the poor, like Isaiah 29.19. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the neediest people shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. 
hopefully you have, you have heard us talk enough about Jesus or you have seen Jesus in your own life clearly enough to understand that this theme is not just in his words, but it's in his whole way of being. He's wandering around the world seeking out those who are lost and poor and outcast. And despite all of this, the Bible actually, in a way, probably could talk even more about the poor. At a certain point, it just kind of starts to get repetitive. It sounds like you're just saying the same thing over and over again. It feels too obvious. And that's kind of the sense that we get from this passage in Galatians 2 that we're looking at. This is beginning in, in verse 6. If you remember the story of the Apostle Paul, Paul was not one of the 12 disciples who followed Jesus during Jesus' lifetime. Paul became a, a Christian later on when he had this vision of the resurrected Jesus calling him, and it, and it turned his whole life upside down. Paul became a follower of Jesus, and then he became determined to share Jesus with others, and yet he wisely decided, I think, to, if I'm going to keep preaching Jesus, I should probably check in with some of the people who actually walked with Jesus. And so he travels to Jerusalem. He meets there with the three main leaders of the Christian movement in Jerusalem. This is uh, the disciples Peter and John and James, who is the brother of Jesus. And so pretty quickly, they kind of all get to know each other. They start to recognize the same Holy Spirit in one another. As Paul describes it in Galatians 2, they, they recognize that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, meaning people who are not Jewish, just as P Peter had been to the circumcised, meaning people who are Jewish. So God, who was at work in Peter, was also at work in me, Paul writes. And Peter, Peter and James and John basically recognize this. They give their approval to Paul to go out and to keep preaching about Jesus. And as Paul is describing this, he kind of just very casually slips in this one sentence. He says, all they asked of me, all these Peter, James, and John, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor. And then he says, that was the very thing I had been eager to do all along. So of all the instructions, of everything that the disciples could give to Paul, all the things that could have mattered enough for them to stop and say, you know, let's just state the obvious so that we can be 100% clear here. Please, Paul, you have to make sure that you remember or keep in mind or be mindful of the poor. So if you are going out to proclaim Jesus, you must also remember the poor, Paul. And Paul is like, yeah, obviously, like, say less, of course. You don't even have to tell me. I serve Jesus, so yeah, of course I want to remember the poor. Like, how could I not? I used to work in this, this, cheer, this, uh, this church that had these uh, wooden pews that people would sit in, and it had, in the pews, they had these little sheets of paper that were uh, attendance registers. If you've ever seen this in older churches before, back in the day, every Sunday, the people in the pews would pass down this little piece of paper, they would write their name, and then they would mark themselves as present if, if they had attended church on that Sunday. And sometimes if, if you had someone in your family who wasn't able to attend, but they were a member of the church, you wanted them recorded, you would write down their name uh, and mark them as absent on a particular Sunday. We didn't, our church didn't actually use these registers anymore, but they were just kind of, the paper was still in the pews, and like the kids would just use it to draw pictures on and things like that. So after one of these Sundays after church, I'm just kind of cleaning up the pews. I see one of these attendance registers that has been filled out by some of the, the little girls in the congregation. They were two sisters. Their names were Aja and Precious. 
And so they had taken this the sheet of paper, they had written their names in there, and they had checked the boxes next to it. Aja, present, precious, present. And then it said below that, shoes, present, necklace, present. I don't know. They had decided to get dressed up for church that day, I guess. Then below that it says, Pastor Patrick, present. And then it says, Bible, present. And then it says, God, absent. What a sick burn from these, these little seven-year-old kids. you got to be kidding me. Never has anybody written a, like a more incisive prophetic word in fewer words than that particular moment. I see your pastor, I see your Bible, but where is your God? I don't, I don't think that they really meant it like that, but honestly, I was kind of shook. I was a little shook. I, as, a, as a pastor, it's good every once in a while to just kind of be stopped in your tracks and, to be like, and just evaluate for a moment. Just have a moment of reflection here. Are there things that we have been taking for granted? Just kind of assuming that obviously, like, of course, God is present in our worship. But over time, maybe it, it seems so obvious that we, we stop naming God, inviting God, hungering for God as we should, and eventually, maybe we start to wonder, wait a minute, is, is it obvious that God is here? Like, is he really? Or do we need to seek him in a different kind of way? So let me say out loud what should be obvious, that to follow Jesus is to be always mindful of the poor, always. It is to seek them out, to take them into account, to ask yourself, Whenever you face a life decision, how can I make a, this decision in a way that includes my mindfulness of the lost, the poor, and the outcast? These people, the lost, the poor, the outcast, they are the ones to whom God sent his own son. As this is, as James, who is with Peter and John, meeting with Paul, James writes letter writes later in a letter, he kind of asks this rhetorical question, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? So how do I follow Jesus towards them, keeping them always in mind? Is that also, like Paul, the one thing that I am eager to do? It should be obvious, but like, is it? So for your reflection, I want to just suggest three phases or kind of steps along the way of engaging in compassionate ministry. First, that we would notice those who are lost, poor, and outcast around us. Second, that we would listen to their stories, that we would want to understand and empathize with their experience of life. And third, that we would become people who testify to what God is doing in their midst, so that we would also testify to the God who has chosen the poor in the world to be rich and to be heirs of the kingdom. Notice, listen, testify. First, what do I mean by notice? You might say to me, yes, Patrick, I, I notice poor people around town. When someone approaches me on the street asking for spare change, I I try to look them in the eyes. I, I try to have a conversation with them. I try not to blow them off. I mean, that's great. That, seriously, that, that's great. But here's the thing. When, when I say the poor, if the first people that come to your mind are the homeless, that's a sign that you have been spending way too much time around rich people. All, 
All you see are the poor who come in search of you, who are coping with their own distress by seeking out the rich and forming these kinds of painful, unhappy, often dysfunctional dependencies on them. But all across this city, there are poor people working so hard just to get by. They have a place to sleep. They have some small income, but it is hard. They are hustling. They are pooling their resources. They are living six or eight or 10 or 12 people to a house. It is all like very tenuous. They are just praying that they don't get injured at work. They are hoping that they can get an advance on their next paycheck. They are just dreaming about different lives entirely. In America, we have to work pretty hard, actually, just to notice the lost, the poor, and the outcast, to take that first step. We live in a society that is increasingly, that is always ordered towards increasing our ease, our comfort, our convenience, especially for those who can afford it. And if there is one thing that makes rich people comfortable, it is not having to look at poor people all the time. So we put poor people out of sight, out of mind. We put our our factories and our farms out in the middle of nowhere. We put our service workers in like these tidy little uniforms and keep them behind locked doors. We, we have our custodians clean the toilets in the middle of the night. We, we put the elderly, the disabled, the mentally ill in their own institutions. I'm sure someday you will just be able to open your door and there will be like a, a drone right there with your delivery just knocking on your door. And you will be able in that moment to feel free to just imagine that there were actually no humans harmed in the making of this product whatsoever. It's just all robots top to bottom. To notice what's happening around us is to notice, for instance, that our cities have been designed so that we don't have to look at poor people out the window. Why are the main roads in New Haven always leading from your neighborhood to downtown? Why is it like so hard to go sideways? Why do you have to wind through these narrow roads to get from East Rock to New Hallville? Because it never occurred to anyone that a rich person would want to pass through New Hallville. I go from my nice neighborhood downtown to work or study. Other people can go from their neighborhoods downtown to clean my floors or make my food. Why are so many of our immigrant families living in Fairhaven, which is literally like its own little peninsula floating separately apart from the rest of the city? To notice all these things is, is also to begin to notice our habit in this country of trying to keep poor people out of sight. That habit first began to exist in a racialized sort of way. This world we have built to hide people's suffering was first used to keep black people and immigrants separate from white society. To this day, there are still houses being sold in Connecticut where we are discovering language written into the deed from 50 or 60 years ago that expressly says that they cannot be resold to black people. Our infrastructure is still being used to keep black people away from white folks, and it has also then proven to be really convenient for keeping all kinds of poor people hidden away. By far, by far, hands down, it's not even close. By far the worst, most degrading poverty that I have ever seen in America was in Arizona on the reservation of the Navajo Nation. Up to that moment, if you had told me that this kind of poverty existed inside the borders of the United States, I would have rejected it out of hand. I would have said that is impossible. I would not have believed you because we hid indigenous people so far out of the way. We forced them like way over the horizon. I could go on and on.
to notice the poor and outcast in this country requires a real choice from us. You have to try to notice because our society is trying all the time to make you ignore it or forget it. I'm, I'm genuinely not that interested in like debating who counts as, as rich or poor. I don't have like a particular number, like a cutoff in mind. It is more, I think, for all of us about this orientation of our hearts. It is about our sight, our vision, our attention. Where is our treasure, Jesus wants to know. Do we spend time thinking about our own futures? How Have we made our decisions oriented toward dreams of success we have for ourselves? Or can we say with Paul and Peter and Jesus that we are always keeping our minds oriented towards those who have the least, that they matter somewhere in our plans? During his ministry, it's just worth mentioning, Jesus never had a house at all. And he he didn't make that choice as like a kind of abstract expression of solidarity with the unhoused. It was just a, a consequence of his attention, his focus. He was always seeking out the lost and the poor. He wasn't like avoiding houses as a rule. He was seeking people out on the streets, on the road, in the fields, by the sea, or in their houses, at their tables. He was noticing them in a literal way, keeping his eyes on them. So first, we notice. Second, we we listen. If we want to engage in compassionate ministry, we have to have compassion. We have to get a feel for what people are really going through, and for that, we will have to listen to them. And that also isn't going to necessarily be easy. People will understandably be suspicious of our motives here in New Haven. We will have to abide with them for a long time, be, be really honest and vulnerable with them, love them, and maybe one day they will really tell us what is on their minds. We will always be tempted to assume that we know already what others are thinking. But we don't. We will have to listen as Jesus himself listens, both to words from the Spirit that guide him, but also often as Jesus listens to people's answers after he asks them questions. We remember Jesus like for his parables, but Jesus was also an excellent question asker. Matt Crosman wrote a whole book about this. You should ask him about this. ECV has been blessed for many years with people in our midst who have made very intentional, very thoughtful decisions about where to live in the city, believing that if they did it with their ears open, with compassion, they might learn over time to hear and listen to their neighbors' stories. So for many years, there were a a bunch of ECVers living in the, the Dwight Kensington neighborhood, just a few blocks that way. Over the last few years, a handful of ECVers have been living with people from other churches in the Borden House community in New Hallville, And it is just amazing some of the relationships that have been formed over the years when people not only live in proximity to the lost, the poor, and the outcast, but really work hard to treat them as neighbors, to to hang out on their porches, to invite their kids over to play basketball, to listen to their lives. I mean, I see them. Leisha and Sinclair are over here. They live in Borden House. Dan Majette uh, is around here somewhere. Don, Lucretia, Josh, Tina, like they lived for many years in Kensington. It would be great 
for you to seek out some of these people and listen. Don't just listen to what they heard in these neighborhoods. Listen to how they chose to be neighbors in these neighborhoods. How they worked hard to listen in a way that would also convey to their neighbors this compassionate love of Jesus, a real attentiveness to the Spirit in their humanity. I'm a big believer that you cannot separate listening from place. The, the best place to listen to someone is in front of them, looking at them in an environment which puts them at ease, which often means that if we really want to listen, we don't just need to like perk up our ears, uh, like turn them up a little bit. We need to actually get up and go out to where Jesus would be. I think that's true for a lot of our listening. I, I can't tell you how many times I have conversations with people who are trying to discern what God is telling them, or maybe it's about their vocation, maybe it's about their future in some way, and sometimes they struggle to hear God, and sometimes the problem is not that they aren't concentrating hard enough on God. It's not that they aren't longing enough for God's word. The problem is not in their heads, it's in their feet. They need to to get up, go out, see life on the streets where Jesus lives, and let that inform their listening. Listen from there, from that spot. Once you start to notice around you people who are struggling, it just seems so incredibly obvious that Jesus cares about them. Like, it almost, it almost does feel silly to talk about it. Like, I'm not even going to explain to you why Jesus cares about struggling people. If you can't sense that already, then we, we need to have a very different conversation to introduce you to Jesus in the first place. Let's not pretend, then, as if we can adequately really listen to Jesus if we only want to hear like a few of the words that he is saying to us. Let's go to where he is at, to the people that he is ministering to, and let's listen to all the words that he is saying. Notice. Listen. Last step, testify. One of the, the earliest leaders of the Vineyard Movement uh, was a man named John Wimber, and he said once that when we do social justice, we experience the presence of the kingdom. When we do social justice, we experience the presence of the kingdom. That's true, and it means several different things at once. It means that we get to see the kingdom of God coming for those who are meek and marginalized to uphold their cause. It means that we get to see the kingdom coming in ourselves. We get to get see ourselves caught up in the work of God. It means that we get to witness God through the lost, the poor, and the outcast, through the work God is actively doing in pursuit of them. For all of that, I just want to use the word testify. We engage in compassionate ministry first and foremost because we want to see God and see the work that he is doing whether or not that involves us in any way. We need to praise God for the way he is giving strength to the poor to seek their own justice. We need to bear witness to the world that what is happening to these outcasts matters. That if the world wants to hear more from God, that they should also look there. We need to proclaim to ourselves all over again that God has revealed himself to us and that he has revealed himself to us as this human life, Jesus of Nazareth. And that in this life, we have not only seen the heart of God, but the hands and the feet of God. We have seen where he goes and who he will touch and what he loves. 
some of you, uh, some of you certainly explicitly moved to New Haven because of your mindfulness of the poor, because you were remembering the poor. It brought you here. Others of you have discovered Jesus' love for the poor since you've been in New Haven, and it has started to change your life accordingly. Some of you knew from the very beginning that, that God was calling you here as a part of a larger plan to prepare or to equip you to engage in compassionate ministry. Maybe you need to persist in that calling. Maybe you need to renew that calling to remind yourself of why you are really here. During this, this particular season, as we begin to think about transition in the life of ECV, as we are saying goodbye to Josh, this would be a great time to renew our sense of calling to the lost, the poor, and the outcast. Jesus says things to his followers like, the poor you will always have with you. And he doesn't say that to be defeatist, but to remind us in times of uncertainty, you will always have at least one task in front of you. You will always have at least one thing that can always be on your mind, and that is God's love for the poor. But I do wonder if some of you are thinking, you know, Patrick, I'm, I'm kind of living inside of some big life decisions that I made long ago. Decisions that, that I made at the time without being mindful of the poor. And now what should I do? What's, what's the way forward from here? Like, how can I honor God from inside of this life that I'm living? At one point when the, the Pharisees questioned Jesus about why he spends so much time with sinners and tax collectors, Jesus says to them, go and learn what this means. And then he quotes God speaking through the prophet Hosea. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Look, if you straight, straight up telling a Pharisee that they need to go read their Bible, that is like fighting words. All that reading you did, Jesus said, all that reading, and you got lost somewhere along the way. You have to go all the way back to the beginning. You have forgotten what should have been obvious. A lot of us would be better off if we could just admit that it was not our love for the lost, the poor, and the outcast that led us to be sitting right here right now. We did not move to New Haven because we thought it would bless the poor and marginalized. We, the poor have not been on our mind. They were not really a big part of the decisions that we made. We came here to New Haven maybe even because we wanted to move in the opposite direction, up and away and off to wealth and success and power. And if that is true for you, good for you for simply being able to admit it. Now, I don't know exactly who you are. I, I, I don't know enough about your story to say exactly what's what. But listen. What is, the, what is the Spirit saying to you right now? All I can tell you is this, that, that whoever you are, all I can tell you is that there is nothing in the Gospels of Jesus that suggests to me that Jesus is willing to accept the life that you are living inside of right now as merely a given. You don't get to set the parameters for Jesus. You don't get to tell him what is up for debate and what is off limits. You don't get to say to him, like, here is what I do with my life and here is some additional spare time that, that I give you that you can make use of. 
I will serve you, but don't touch these parts of my life, where I go to school, where I live, what job I work, what I aspire to do. Let's negotiate, Jesus. We can work this out. Let me keep those things in place, but in other parts of my life, I will do for you whatever it takes. What the Gospels of Jesus give us instead are a bunch of stories about people's lives being turned upside down, like Paul. One day you're a fisherman. The next day you're a fisher of men. One day you're a tax collector. The next day you're not. One day you have a demon. The next day you don't. One day you are bleeding just like every day like you have for 14 years in a row. The next day you are healed. One day you're despised. The next day you're loved by God's anointed himself. That is what the Gospels testify to, and that is what God invites us to testify to as well. The goodness of giving back to him every part of our lives. So, let me end here with with just a few questions for you to reflect on, and perhaps even questions that you can take to God for yourself as we enter into worship and prayer. First, what people and places are already in your life? in your neighborhood, in your city, in this church, what people and places do you need to focus your attention on so that you can listen more clearly to God? Second, well, I want to say, what is God asking you? But actually, before that, perhaps I should say, what do you need to allow God to question in your life? What does God want to call into question and you won't permit it? And then, maybe then after you deal with that, then we could ask the question, what is God asking you? Yesterday was one thing. Today is something entirely different. Because today you are sitting here, and God is present here. And God wants your attention, and God is moving even in your midst right now. Are you listening? Are you noticing Will you testify? I'm going to invite our worship team back up to lead us into a a time of worship. But as we do, we're going to take communion together. Feel free to raise your hand. If you do not have a communion cup, someone will uh, come around with one in just a moment. Thank you, Leisha. One of the reminders uh, that communion gives us, that the early church was very insistent on remembering. In fact, in some ways, it was one of the, the things that communion signified first and foremost for them, was that we were all standing equally before God. That we were all going to drink from the same cup. That we were all going to eat from the same bread. That no one was going to get more or less that no one was going to get a better portion than someone else. It was a way of affirming that this is for all of us, and at the same time, that we would have to affirm that this is not only for us, but that it is for everyone, that it is for all of our brothers and sisters, regardless of where they might stand in the world in which we live. And that sense of our deep 
connection and equality in the body of Christ is itself the beginning of a noticing that becomes transformative. So we are going to take communion together and remember as we do what Jesus said to us on the night that he was betrayed. We will take out this little wafer and remember Jesus saying to his disciples, this is my body which is for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. All you who drink of this do so in remembrance of me. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that you have come in search of us. That before we have noticed anyone else, before we have even noticed ourselves, you noticed us, came out into the streets, knocked on our door, and came in to sit in our house. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to share this meal before you. And we ask, Lord, that this would be your body and your blood for us and for our transformation. That we would be included in your life and that today would be different for us than yesterday. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.